Hey everybody, it's Michael here, and you're listening to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. Welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course, I'm joined by Digital Book World's own Jeremy Greenfield. How are you? Good. How are you? I am doing quite well. Thank you very much. So, lots of things have been happening in uh, the e-reading and uh, digital publishing space, most notably e-book subscription services. We have Oyster and e-reader. What do you know about that? Well, Oyster is kind of the highly anticipated 
Spotify for eBooks. It got funded last October to the tune of $3 million, and the uh, company has worked on the product all year and it's come up with a very attractive iOS product that's really only available in the U.S. right now. And basically, uh, you pay about $10 a month and have access to over 100,000 eBooks from publishers like HarperCollins, Sourcebooks, Workman. HarperCollins is, is the only of the big five that's signed up yet, and it's not clear how many HarperCollins titles are available. Um, however, uh, it's getting a lot of buzz. People really, really like the product. And what's most astounding perhaps is that Oyster may have found a way to solve kind of the, the compensation problem, the revenue problem. Why, how do you compensate publishers and authors for these kinds of downloads? It's a problem that Spotify has had. Uh, Spotify has been adopted very, very highly, and um, people love it. But artists complain that they don't really get enough money for, for what's, what they offer Spotify. It might be undercutting their other businesses. So Oyster is something I'm going to watch very, very carefully. But I wonder, Michael, um, you know, as a reader, do you think that $10 is too much, too little, or just right to pay for access to a wide range of eBooks? Yeah, from data that we've compiled, um, asking that very question throughout the years, I think most people feel comfortable around the $9.99 uh, range. But I think that with a compelling product, I think people would even be willing to pay, you know, nineteen ninety nine for it. The Spotify of eBooks has been something that people have been trying to solve the last three or four years. I mean, it. it I would be hard pressed to go a few months without getting a new uh, thing coming across my desk saying we are the new Spotify of eBooks. And I've seen a lot of companies come and go trying to do this model, but I have heard of Oyster consistently about the last year, year and a half or so, ever since they started coming up with this model. And they seem to be, if there's any going to be any success with this sort of Spotify of eBooks, so it would likely be Oyster just because they're, they're backed. I would be very interested to see how the revenue model is, is done and, and if HarperCollins is actually going to be contributing frontlist titles or if they're going to be contributing backlist titles? You know, we, the answer to that question isn't clear. Uh, and I think the revenue model for publishers is something the company is keeping very close to the vest and not sharing. Uh, but there, you know, Oyster isn't the only company, as you mentioned, that's going after this. Even just this week, a company called eRita launched, and eRita is like a subscription platform, um, but it's it's not exactly. It's more like a book of the month club. You pay seventeen dollars or about twenty-five or something, a little bit over thirty, for access to download and basically own two, three, or four eBooks per month. So it's kind of like a discount club. Um, for eBooks, but it's a similar idea in terms of you know pay a flat fee, get to read you know a certain number of books. Um, there is of course the Kindle Owners Lending Library, which is basically like a subscription platform. There uh, is uh, things like Safari Books Online, which is a subscription eBook platform for technology professionals. There's 24 Symbols, which is a general interest one out of Spain. Um, there uh, are ones that are dedicated toward children. And of course, there's always libraries. You can always go to your library through OverDrive and you know, download a wide selection of books to read uh, whenever you want. Um, none of these things have really taken off in the imagination of readers. And I think probably the problem is, is that people don't consume books the same way they 
consume music in the case of Spotify or movies in the case of Netflix. It, it's great to have a huge catalog of music and movies that you can just kind of fall back on and watch anytime or listen to anytime or have with you when you need it. It's not, that's not really how people consume books. Uh, so that's one thing. And, and I think the second thing is if people think about prices, you know, most people don't read that many books every year. I'm, I'm a pretty heavy reader. I read, you know, 20, 40, 50 books a year or something like that. So if they had all the books I wanted to read, it could be a pretty good deal depending on how much I pay. But if you only read, you know, five or ten books a year, $10 a month is probably not really worth it for you. Yeah, so I, I think it's going to be hard to get this model going. No, I, I totally agree. I would probably say there's way more music and video consumers out there than there are book readers. And that's sort of the sad state of affairs where, uh, you know, entertainment in the forms of movies, television shows, and music is more popular than actual reading. But I think that that's a conversation for another time. The the Spotify, the Netflix of ebooks, this is like the holy grail of the publishing industry. I think for the last three or four years, this has been what everybody's trying to crack. Some people have done it with textbooks, like you said, kids' books. Amazon did the lending library, which is probably the closest we've got to something that has mainstream success that almost all publishers and indie authors are behind. Um, there's a lot of things in the background, but I think that that's probably the most successful service that's launched. And undoubtedly, it's, it's Amazon, so they have a lot of money and a lot of people that they could pay to make that work. It would be interesting to track Oyster, and I'm very interested to find out the details behind the scenes, and I'm sure things like that will will come to light as more people get involved and more information starts to come out because of that. We do have some new device news. Amazon announced the new Kindle Paperwhite. And this is a, obviously their second generation Paperwhite. You're basically seeing 25% faster page turns. The screen is different. They're using new e-ink technology uh, underneath the hood. And it should give the new Kobo Aura a run for its money. It's going to be using some new e-ink uh, type of screens, and this is something that uh, e-ink submitted a press release on, and it's using the same type of um, dis display screen technology that the, the Kobo Aura is doing, but it's also actually using some very new stuff as well. It's using what's known as e-ink Regal and e-ink Carta, and we have a post on our, our website describing all of the details behind that, but what you're basically doing is instead of a page refreshing every time you turn a page or every six pages as e-readers have always done, it's going to be doing it every uh, chapter now, which makes uh, immersion, uh, you, you get a higher level of it. Jeremy, how do you feel about the new Paperwhite 2? Uh, it looks great. Uh, for me, you know, a lot of these things are really incremental, uh, and the main thing is, you know, is Amazon still basically in the position that it's always been in, which is it's either the best or one of the best technology products out there, and you know, of course you can debate those things. Uh, so I don't think this changes too much. I think this is what we all expected. 
uh, that Amazon would come out with uh, new products right after uh, Kobo did, and they would be as good or, or better than Kobo's from a technical standpoint. You know, I think the differentiators uh, here for for buyers um, are going to be the things that don't really have to do with the technology. You know, the the catalog, the prices, the ease of use. You know, which ecosystem they want to be involved in, and uh, if you are an Amazon Prime user for you know faster package deliveries and cheaper package deliveries you know the Amazon Kindle device one two combination is is really compelling so if you're a really savvy consumer i think this doesn't change anything except for that Amazon continues to be uh the the go to choice but I think as a reader, you know, as a reader myself, and I have one of the older Kindle Paperwhites that I was, it was given to me as a gift for my sisters for my birthday, I uh, just am glad that people are continuing to invest in this technology. Uh, you, you can really easily see companies go away from what's happening uh, with e-readers, that they're just not as popular anymore, they're not growing as quickly anymore. But I, as a, as a reader, really just want to see the, see the continued innovation, and, and I want to be able to buy a new e-reader a couple of years from now when my, my Paperwhite you know, runs out of gas. It's Do you the, think this is a game changer? Well, on a hardware level, it's an incremental upgrade. It is, it is using some new technologies, but until I get it in my hands and actually compare it to the Kobo Aura, to the original Kindle Paperwhite, it's going to be hard to judge exactly how this new hardware um, you know, compares. I really think that the new Paperwhite is all about the software. For one, it has Goodreads integration. It has not yet, not yet. Well, that was announced, but it's not happening. Yet. It, it's going to happen. They, I think they said within two months, but likely when it, it's going to be able to go for sale at September 30th. So like likely when the 3G model comes out a few weeks later, that's when it'll receive the firmware updates. But in all the the press photos and in all of the initial press releases, it was really hyping the Goodreads integration. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar, Goodreads is a social um, site where people comment, rate, and review books as well as flag books that they want to read, uh, people establish goals, I want to read 40 books this year, and they can have progression charts. So Amazon had purchased Goodreads uh, a few months ago, and there was a lot of rumors that Goodreads will have a presence in the new line of Kindle e-readers and tablets, and we got the first information on what Goodreads is actually going to do. It basically is going to be right on the home screen. You'll be able to click on uh, the G logo and uh, initiate some ebook discovery. How do you think, Jeremy, that the Goodreads integration, what do you think about this whole entire situation? I think that it's going to be very, very valuable for Amazon. I think this is the main reason Amazon bought Goodreads. And I think what it does is it, is it adds two things. One, something where people are just more hooked into what Amazon is doing. Uh, it, now Amazon is the place where they buy books, they read books, and they talk about books more so than ever. And I think, two, it also just makes the service of Amazon better. And one of the really important things for these companies to do is to make it so that you get better book recommendations. I know this is something we talk about a lot and we always say, well, this is a problem for publishers and not for readers, but it's also a problem for retailers because if they can recommend the perfect book to you every single time, they can keep you reading. And if they keep you reading, they keep you engaged. And if they keep you engaged, they keep you as a customer. So this is a really long-term but really important play for, uh, for, for Amazon. 
So one thing that they're integrating into the new Kindle, and this kind of follows into what I wanted to talk about next, is Matchbook. So Matchbook will actually be on the new Kindle. Matchbook, I guess, is a way that you can buy the physical book and actually get the ebook at a severely discounted price. It's called bundling. Jeremy, school the folks out there on what Matchbook's all about. So basically, if you now buy a print book on Amazon, if it's one of uh, a certain subset of print books, you'll be offered the opportunity to get the ebook for free or very, very cheap, two ninety nine or less. In addition, if you've ever bought a book on Amazon from 1995 when it launched on, and, and one of these books is in this program, you will be given the opportunity to buy the ebook for, for very, very cheap or free. And this is really Amazon's way of, of bundling, of selling both the print and the ebook at the same time. And this is something publishers have been thinking about for a very long time as ways to sort of harness the power of digital publishing and the ebook revolution. Um, so I think that we've seen bundling experiments, we've seen publishers um, bundle ebooks and print books and various kinds of ebooks and other digital products and sell them through their own sites or through other vendors. FNW Media, our Digital Book World's parent company, has been doing bundling for a very long time with both digital and physical products. So I think that Amazon experimenting with bundling is going to be the real test for the publishing industry at large as to whether this is a good business idea or not. Yeah, I think so. And this is something that I've been an advocate of ever since I started reporting on digital publishing news, I guess, the last five years. Th this is what it's all about. It it's, people often say that ebooks cannibalize print, and you only have to look at any city, and undoubtedly, every single year, a number of uh, indie bookstores close, a number of chains close, borders going bankrupt in the U.S., Everybody is saying basically that ebooks are cannibalizing print and bookstores themselves are suffering. I think that things like this, where you can buy the physical book and either get the ebook for free or if it's a, a best selling, a new book like Steve Jobs' autobiography or something, you're going to pay a premium price, of course. But I, I really find something compelling about promoting the acquisition of physical books and having their companion or the digital copy uh, available. You, you look at, to say, what Blu-rays and what DVDs have been doing for the last uh, number of years, where if you buy the physical copy, you get a free digital edition as well that you could read on your tablet, you could read on your you know, PC. Uh, what Ultraviolet is doing, I think that they have an awesome business model where you know, they have ultraviolet stickers on Blu-rays and DVDs, and if you buy it, then you could use it on any platform, tablets, um, PCs, Macs, laptops, smartphones, everything. And I think that that business model applied to eBooks is the way of the future. And I think that this is a way that you could sustain physical print books and also digital books at the same time. Yeah, I think that for a lot of users, uh, you know, rounding out their libraries or get that, getting that added value um, is going to be really important for them. I think there's a really good use case here, though, for uh, for avid readers in that if you buy the print book on Amazon, it's going to come in a day or two or three or depending on how you ordered it, and then you get the ebook right away. So you can start reading right now, but if print is your preferred format, um, when that print book comes, you can pick up where you left off. 
So I think that um, you know everything you said is true. I agree with everything you said, and I think this is more than a marginal business if it can take off, if consumers like it. And it seems like they probably will, but you never know until you put something out in the market. Yeah, it's true. It, this is going to have to be a wait-and-see approach to see if people were going to are publishers going to buy into it on a greater degree and are we going to see more frontless titles more bestsellers you know participating in this program likely you know a year from now we'll have a better indication on the industry wide acceptance of it now jeremy we've seen each other quite recently we were at the kobo launch event I believe mm-hmm. it was about 2 weeks ago or so now uh, something like that, yep. And, uh, Actually, it was last week. It was last week. Okay, so we were in New York, and uh, you're based there, and I, I flew there from Vancouver. And so we saw the announcement of the new Kobo Aura and really like three new tablets uh, from Kobo. This was uh, an event that was unlike any of the other Kobo product launches, and I've been to them all, so... In the past, Kobo's had events in Toronto, and then it had uh, one event where it announced the Kobo Aura at the London Book Fair, but it was a fairly subdued event. The event in New York was unlike any other event that Kobo's ever orchestrated. Now, I know you've gone to a number of New York uh, product launches uh, over the years. How has what was what, what's your impressions of Kobo's event versus like other big product launches? Well, you know, Kobo has gotten much better at how it presents itself to the world. Uh, A couple of years ago, when I first started covering this industry, I was kind of astounded at how some companies didn't really understand how to talk to the press, how to talk to consumers, and that's changing. Uh, Kobo was kind of, you know, not to single them out, but Kobo was one of the offenders in terms of how it presented itself to the world. This product launch was very slick. It was very smooth. Um, and I think Kobo did a really good job of giving all, all the information, of entertaining people, delighting people, exciting people, and most importantly, the people that are going to write about it. You know, at the end of the day, the very best reviewers, uh, you know, like you guys and like at the big papers, you know, it's all about the product. You know, how good is the product? Um, but if the product is presented in a smooth way where there isn't any friction between us getting the information, you know, it's much better for Kobo in the short term and in the long term. So I think that. Um, you know, it was, it was a good event. I think it was very good of Kobo, and I think shows that Kobo has really grown as a company in the past couple of years. And you know, one of the things I think we all like about Kobo in terms of watching how this company progresses is that it's really scrappy. You know, they launched a new device in the marketplace very fast after launch, and they scaled their business very quickly after launch, and they just aggressively started moving into tons of countries. And they're sort of like you know those teenagers that drive way too fast, but they're getting there to some degree. And, and I actually wrote about this for Forbes that that you know the industry should take another look at Kobo um, because it really is very aggressively expanding all over the world. And it's got a very tough competitor in Amazon and some of the others. Uh, and maybe it won't be successful, but I think that the company is, is getting its act together more now than ever. Okay, so I want to give the listeners out there a sense on how this event actually happened. So everybody was kind of waiting outside, and um, there was a, a big elevator that had that opened, and there was people there with like drinks and hors d'oeuvres, and it, the elevator went down a level, and there was all sorts of food and, and drinks available, and I think roughly that there was probably about a few hundred people there from the media and uh, from Kobo there, and 
they had an event where the Kobo CEO was on stage kind of giving a, a history of the company, uh, the history of reading, uh, what they've been up to lately, sort of a channeling, a, sort of a Steve Jobs from, you know, four or five years ago. And they kind of, you know, gave the, the, the progression before they actually got into the, the product announcements. So they announced uh, the new Kobo Aura, which we have reviewed the hell out of in, over the course of the last few weeks. We've pretty well compared it against every e-reader in the market, conducted a series of reading tests. It's probably their best e-reader dedicated device to date, and all of their tablets are going to be released, you know, within about the next month or two and, um, yeah, I found that I've gone to a lot of product events, and I thought this was one of the most polished ones in terms of everybody within a Kobo organization was fairly accessible. It was pretty easy to get the, the inside track on exactly sort of what was going on. And I thought that they did a fairly good job in um, promoting their new devices, um, announcing their new magazine service, which is something we haven't talked about, but Kobo's getting into magazines, and they have signed up major publishers such as uh, Hearst, Condé Nast, and uh, a number of other uh, publications. And this kind of goes in line with what I kind of wanted to talk to you about next. And this is sort of magazines in general. And if you load up, say... Um, you know, a Google tablet, if you uh, do like an iPad or something like that, as soon as you turn it on now, you can purchase magazines. And you don't have to rely on third-party apps anymore, uh, such as like Zinio or like Press Reader or a number of these other companies. You sort of have magazines instantly available to you the day that you power up your device and you're like, okay, let's check out the store. Hey, there's magazines here. How do you see Kobo offering magazines and now that all these, you know, Kobo, Google, Apple, they're all doing magazines, how do you think that this is going to hurt these sort of third-party companies like Zinio, things like that? I think that this will, unfortunately for some of those companies, mean that they are no longer as necessary as they were. And the bad news for these companies in general is that digital magazines are just not, you know, as hugely popular as they could be. Uh, so they're, they're kind of being disintermediated in a business that isn't all that strong to begin with. Um, it's kind of a, a business that has kind of struggled to, to get far off the ground. But I think for Kobo, this means, you know, this is kind of, you know, stepping up to the table, just like many of the other uh, device manufacturers have stepped up to the, the, the table and, and uh, given this kind of offering. What Kobo has done differently is it has a new sort of way of navigating magazines that it says is better or different than some of the others. And I think that, you know, as with many of the things I think about technology in this industry, I don't think that this new way of navigating magazines is going to change any consumer minds about the company, but I think it's important for Kobo to have that, that other content offering um, beyond uh, just ebooks that you can go to it for, and this really also fits in with the you know the reading mode ethic of Kobo. You know, Kobo's new tablets have a mode that uh, you can turn off all the distractions and power the processor down significantly to save energy, and, and basically use it much like an e-reader is used. Um, so, and I think magazines fit in nicely with that. Uh, so I think it's you know kudos to Kobo for for stepping up there. What I'd like to see from a company like Kobo, um, and we see it from Amazon and Apple all the time, is introduce 
producing an innovation that is truly different and truly game-changing and, and truly uh, going to put it ahead of its competitors, something that its competitors were, will scramble to imitate. Um, we saw when Barnes & Noble came out with the Nook with Glowlight that for just a brief second, Barnes & Noble looked like this really innovative company that might just have a chance to win the e-reader wars. And of course, everyone imitated it very quickly, which is a testament uh, to how, how smart the Glowlight was when it first came out. Um, so I, I think that it would be really interesting to see some, an innovation on that level come out of a company like Kobo, but we really haven't seen it yet. Well, it comes down to it, is there any innovation left in, in it, just a dedicated e-reader? Uh, I would be remiss to say no. Um, I think e-readers have done all that they can do um, in their current form. The only well, we're, not, we're not product designers, so there are probably things that we haven't thought of, but let me put this out there. Pricing. What about a free e-reader? That would have, be innovative. Well, people have tried to do that. Um, I was talking with uh, the boys at Texter, which is uh, a Berlin-based company, and uh, they had a device called the Texter Beagle, which I think a lot of people who are listening to the show have heard of. It was basically uh, going to be a $29 e-reader where they were trying to iron out agreements with uh, mobile companies in order to, if, when you renew your contract or be, buy a new device, you would just be given an e-reader. And they found that no one was really accepting to that. They thought that e-readers were going to be a dead technology and no major companies like Vodafone or Virgin or uh, T-Mobile, Sprint, AT&T, Verizon, Rogers, Bell, Telus, etc., etc., all said, no, we, do, we don't see any value in this. And I think that if you're going to give an e-reader away for free or at a severely uh, diminished price, it would have to be from a company that's going to be able to give it away for free or at a very, very low price, knowing that they can make that money back in the digital content. And I don't think that digital content is quite there yet for that type of incentive or for companies to actually make that money back. I remember last Christmas seeing a number of reports about people that got e-readers, like dedicated e-readers as presents, most of them turned it on, I, I would probably say about 35% never used them, and then 15% more used it once, never bought anything, and then ended up returning it. And that's very telling for people that actually get them as gifts that they're not even using them. They're, they're using tablets or smartphones instead. You know, maybe that is telling. But maybe it's, it would be a different story if, say, uh, a company like Kobo gave away an e-reader, but you paid you know, $50 or $100 up front as sort of like a content piggy bank. And so once that $100 or $50 ran out, you know, you'd have the e-reader and you would continue to buy uh, more e-books from it. And maybe it's something else. Maybe the e-reader is given away with some other feature. Maybe Kobo you know, does a deal with Netflix where someone buys a Netflix account and they get an e-reader for free and Netflix subsidizes it because Netflix wants that promotion. I think there are a lot of creative things that people, the business development folks can think of that haven't you know, been tried yet. Um, back to the, you know, the larger discussion is that it seems like innovation has run out in, for, for e-readers and even maybe even for tablets. Um, maybe there's some new kind of device that we'll see emerge. But I, I, I have faith in humanity. I think that we're going to see more innovation uh, both within and without these product categories.
Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of waiting for the day where I was looking at concept e-readers from a few years ago. Uh, I remember a company called Plastic Logic was really pioneering uh, flexible e-paper where you would actually have like a sheet of bendable paper in your hands and it, it functioned basically as a full-on touchscreen device where you can do page turns, it was in color, so you could read magazines, newspapers, e-books, and it was like it was basically like a sheet of paper maybe like a little bit bulkier but i think that the one thing that's holding that back is like flexible components um bendable cpus bendable batteries i remember actually talking with plastic logic at uh, the consumer electronics show when they were showing some of their prototype devices and they said that the one thing that was holding back flexible, true flexible display technologies and basically holding a sheet of paper in your hands was basically the components. Uh, Freescale, you know, Intel, AMD, all of these companies that power these devices aren't making flexible components. And until they start making flexible components, we'll never really see, I think, true innovation. And this is like applicable to wearable tech like um, the, all the new smartwatches that were just announced at IFA by like Samsung and um, Qualcomm and, and companies like that, you know, you're not going to really see true bendable tech until the components catch up. And I think that we're still two or three years from those type of components actually catching up to what consumers actually want. Well, I wonder, do consumers actually want this kind of stuff? And, and again, you know, only putting things out there in the market will, will, will we be able to know for sure. I think so. I think people just have to take the gamble of, you know, um, it's not really proven that, say, like smartwatches, it's pretty well the next thing that everyone's talking about now. But aside from Pebble, that had a tremendous Kickstarter campaign, one of the most successful uh, ever, but people aren't getting their devices yet. They signed an agreement with Best Buy in the States, but not a lot of stores have the products. So it's hard to say if consumers are going to embrace watches. And for those of you that may not be familiar with smartwatches, basically not only does it tell the time, but it's an extension of your smartphone. You can pair it with your Android or with your iOS device, get Facebook, Twitter uh, notifications, get email pings. If there's a call coming through, some of the some of the watches will actually allow you to talk into your watch, very Dick Tracy-esque, but there's a lot of kind of cool software elements that are going to uh, be taking place. And I think it's all a matter of customer acceptance. It's such a new technology that who knows if people are going to buy into it. It's, it's much like Google Glasses. It's getting a lot of industry acclaim and attention. It's not going to be available yet until about next year, but wearable tech in general, the big question is, is will consumers uh, accept it? How will it affect privacy laws? Will people make apps for it? Um, a device or hardware is only good as the software uh, that runs on it, which is why BlackBerry isn't doing so well because it's not really attracting developer support. Mm -hmm. One of the last things, Jeremy, I wanted to talk to you about is Sony. And Sony has um, put their new e-reader, the T3, up for sale. It ships actually Monday. And how do you feel that Sony is staying relevant in the e-reader space? I think that Sony is, quite frankly, 
not that relevant right now in the e-reader space. I mean, the only country that I'm aware where Sony has a significant market share is Japan, and Japan's uh, you know e-book uh, industry is not that large yet. Um, and if you look at Sony's technology, and you can confirm this better than I can, but it just seems like it's not uh, as uh, current as uh, you know the latest Kindle device and the latest Kobo device. Um, so I think Sony has a lot of work to do if it wants to get back in in this game. Uh, although in Japan, you know, it, it's the third uh, largest e-reading company, and, and unlike in the U.S. where Amazon really dominates the marketplace, you know, the market in Japan is is pretty well split up between Amazon, Kobo, and Sony. Uh, so I think Sony has a lot of work to do. Uh, maybe it's it's wearable technology, the watches, uh, maybe integrating with some sort of e-reading or, or audio books, uh, something that Sony could do. The company's been trying very hard over the past year to add more you know, goodies for readers like discovery uh, uh, platforms and, and other things, but so far as I know, it hasn't made too many inroads yet. I mean, Sony's done, I, I have to commend them. They've really tried hard, I guess, all of this year in making changes to like their online web store, adding new discovery tools. It's debatable whether it's actually working or not, but they're trying. And I mean, I have to give them points for trying to innovate, trying to do things. But they're e-readers. There was a time not too long ago, maybe about three years ago now, when every year Sony would release at least three new e-readers and then they started just doing one and then every year it's just a single e-reader that's just a very small incremental upgrade from the, the year prior. They have no innovation. They're not doing anything new with the hardware considering that the new Kobo Aura and Amazon Kindle Paperwhite is pretty well using the latest and greatest e-ink technology. Sony is still using uh, processors display screens and stuff that was available in 2012. And so I haven't actually played with one yet, although the only person that I know that has played with one was a, a Spanish website, and I talked to him on the phone. He sent me a bunch of uh, screenshots. He sent me some video before he posted it, so I got a sense of what this could do on its own and compared to the, the PRST2, which is uh, last year's model, there's really no software, there's really no hardware upgrades to even make this worth it. So if anybody has like a T1 or a T2 e-reader, there's really no compelling reason to upgrade to this device. And I'm kind of sad to say that because Sony... There was a time when Sony was one of the leading innovation companies, but then it started to lag behind not just e-readers, but in tech in general. When everyone was doing LCD TVs, it was still doing CRT TVs in Japan because that's what was selling. And Sony didn't do too well in the TV arena. They're not really doing too well in the tablet arena and for smartphones, I really don't know too many people that have the Xperia line of phones. And they seem to have fallen off the wagon in terms of innovation, in terms of having new current products coming out and competing with companies like Samsung and uh, like LG and HTC and companies like that it seems to be lagging behind the competition in almost all of their consumer electronic segments. 
Yeah, long gone are the days of the disc man and the walk man. I'm kind of sad to say, because I, I used to have a Sony Walkman, and it was pretty boss. Yeah, exactly. Boss is exactly the right word. Unfortunately, it hasn't evolved from beyond boss. <laughs> it's true. All right, guys, so we've talked about a lot of things today. And if you have any comments, you could leave them in the discussion field of this uh, podcast. If you're listening to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any other type of service, you can come to our website at goodybeater.com and uh, drop a comment from there, and myself or Jeremy will respond to it. And Jeremy, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. And, uh, Thanks for you, having me. Yeah, no worries. And you've been listening to another compelling edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. Michael and Jeremy, everybody take care. <laughs>